Beloved, if you would turn in God's holy word to 1 Kings 17, 1 Kings 17, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 24 of 1 Kings 17. I've entitled the sermon, The Perplexing and Life-Giving Ways of Our God. If you've walked with the living God more than a minute, then you know at times his ways are perplexing. And yet, simultaneously, at the same time, they are always good and life-giving. And I think that's going to become abundantly clear as we look at the text this morning. We're in uh, the 9th century B.C. in the ministry of Elijah. He's ministering in Baal's backyard there in the country of Sidon in the town of Zarephath. And he's ministering to a widow We're going to pick up reading at verse 8 to set the context for us this morning, but I'm going to be looking particularly at verses 17 to 24. I would prayerfully ask you now to give your utmost attention to the most important thing you will hear all week, which is the word of the living God. 1 Kings 17, verse 8. Then the word of the Lord Yahweh came to him, him being Elijah. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord Yahweh your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord Yahweh sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and She and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord Yahweh that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he, Elijah, said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord Yahweh, O Lord Yahweh, my God. Have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself 
upon the child three times and cried to the Lord Yahweh, O Lord Yahweh, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord Yahweh in your mouth is truth. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God lives forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come before you in your holy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Savior given among men, the only name by which we can and must be saved. Lord, we come clothed in his righteousness. We come as children to a Father who gives good gifts. So give the Holy Spirit now. Bless the meditation of our heart and the words of my mouth that our Lord and our rock might receive all the praise and all the glory. Oh, Father, may you increase and may I decrease. Give your spirit in abundance. Give unction, we pray, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Before I begin in earnest, let me put my mic on. I didn't see it this morning, so let me put that on real quick. Beloved, it was believed in Canaan that Baal was not only the storm god, that is the pagan god, the fertility god, the agricultural god of that day, to be the giver of rain, it was also believed to be the giver of life. When he gave rain, the earth yielded its produce and the harvest was collected And when he did not, the earth suffered, and those on the earth suffered and died. Baal was believed to be the source of life. And we think to ourselves, we stop and we pause and we think, well, how did Israel, the people of Abraham, right, the sojourner, the friend of God, come to believe such folly, to believe in such foolishness such as Baal? Well, she had forgotten that the Lord, he is God. She had forgotten. She had misplaced her affections on that false God. And now here in Baal's backyard, Zarephath, Jezebel's hometown, the covenant Lord comes and once again reminds his people that he is God. There is no other. You see, the battle lines are being drawn up, as it were, as we head into chapter 18 in that battle at Mount Carmel. Well, the prophets of Baal will stand against the prophet of Yahweh, and we will soon find out by fire who the living God is. You see, Baal is being exposed as a fabrication of the idolatrous heart of men. You see, Baal has no answer, though, for the grave, right? In reality, Baal is just as dead as the trees that had been cut down to make his image. As Calvin would rightly say, the fallen heart of man is an idol factory, We're always constructing and building idols. And from the womb, we have all gone astray. All too ready and willing to trust in anything and everything other than the living God. 
Today in the West, perhaps we're not bowing down to statues, and I say that with a little hesitance because I don't get out much. Somewhere in these United States, I would venture to say someone's bowing down to an idol made of wood, gold, or steel, even as I speak before you this morning. But we have idols, though we might not bow down to a literal idol fabricated with hands and with material created, but we have idols that maintain our own sense of worth and well-being, whether it be money, material prosperity, jobs, power, position, influence. All of these things can become idolatrous, good things, and yet without the wisdom of the Holy Spirit not held Loosely, they can become idolatrous, you see. But all of them, in the end, meet their end like Baal in the face of death. You see, they cannot transcend the great leveler of men. And what is the great leveler of men? Death. (laughs) Death is the great leveler of men. We are all going to the grave. You see, there's only one who has power over the grave. The one who perplexes us with his providence in this life is the only one who's overcome the grave. Where else are you going to go? You have to go to the God who perplexes you because he alone has the words of eternal life. As we saw last week and as we work through the text this morning, there is Elijah in Baal's backyard, and this Gentile widow, her son, and all found the Lord to be enough, to be their portion. They lived in the reality of the fourth position, rather the fourth petition of the Lord's prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. And all was apparently going well, the calm before the storm. She had woken up that morning with the jar of oil, the jug of oil and the jar of flour, with the tune of Great is Thy Faithfulness playing in the background. She had been singing the praises of Yahweh even that morning. And then suddenly, suddenly out of nowhere, in high cotton and Easy days, we read in verse 17. After this, the son of the widow, the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. You see, the widow who had acted so faithfully on God's promise there in verse 15 and had found him to be faithful and true, that his mercies are new every morning is all of a sudden thrown into a providence that every parent dares even think about. The providence of losing a child, of holding a dead child in your arms. That's the providence that now has befallen her. All of a sudden, out of nowhere. And how about Elijah, right? He he went from having all of his needs met Food and shelter. Verse 19, we're told that he's in the upper chamber. That day, the home would have a roof, and that roof would serve as the upper chamber, and there'd be a staircase up to that room. This loft, this esteemed prophet is now, the tables have turned. He's now being accused of murder. In just a moment, in just an instant, life can turn. And this God who is so kind and so great and so marvelous in one moment can become perplexing and baffling. 
in the lines for us in that moment aren't as pleasant as they once were, just hours, moments before. You see, this new found faith of the widow would now be tested beyond anything she could have imagined. Would her faith survive? Now, as she walks through the valley of the shadow of death, you see, death will expose the idolatry of the heart. And that's what Yahweh is doing. Her grief leads her to resentment and accusations. Beloved, why did God do this? Stop and pause and think. Why does he follow an everlasting jar of meal with the devastating death of a son? Why does he supply the means to sustain life only to take it away within hours? The Psalms are filled with all kinds of questions like this. Real questions from real historical people who live in real time and space. Not superheroes, not animated Marvel characters, but real people who struggle. Asking God why. Read this week Psalm 90 verse 9, the the psalmist there is praying, asking Yahweh his portion, his God, what profit would there be if I die? And listen to what he says. What would you gain in my death? If I were to go down to the depths of darkness, will a grave sing your praise, Yahweh? If you snuff out my life, who's going to praise you, Yahweh, in this wicked and perverse generation? How could death's dust declare your faithfulness? Have you ever prayed this way? Have you ever been here in the crossroads of of real life where you have more questions than answers, where you're emptied of all resources, when your money cannot get you the solution that you so desperately and existentially want? You see, friends, the temptation for us this morning as we read the text is to immediately begin to correct the widow. To correct her theology. Right? Monday morning theologian. If she would have only done it this way. But before we begin to do that, I want you to take a moment to to try to place yourself in her shoes. I want you to come alongside of her there in Zeropath. In Baal's backyard, you see all she's known all her days when she was a little girl was Baal provides. Baal's the answer. Baal's the resurrection and the life. He who believes in him shall never die. That's what she's been catechized in. That was the the catechism she memorized that Baal brought rain. Baal sustained life. And now... She finds herself beginning to trust God, and yet God comes in his perplexing way in the midst of high noon when the sun is the brightest, when things seemingly are turning a corner, right? She was just preparing her last meal, the last supper for her son, 
When the prophet comes to her and challenges her and gives her the promise of God that if she will step out in faith and trust Yahweh, the God of Israel, he will provide. She's just starting to learn the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. It's only begun to be sung on her lips. And now Yahweh comes. And Yahweh confuses her, perplexes her. You see, she's lost everything with the death of her son, right? He was the only family she had, her security in her old age. There was no social security. She had no 401K. There was nothing for her other than that son, that only son that she had. A.W. Pink, in his wonderful little book called The Life of Elijah, says about this, in him, that is her son, all her affections were centered And with him, all her hopes were destroyed. You see, he was her hope. He was the incarnation, if you will, of her hope. And all of a sudden, she'd been delivered. And now out of nowhere, here she is carrying Elijah to Elijah, her dead son, asking why. It all seems so unfair. It it, it doesn't match what I want God to match in my life. It's not the way it should be. She lashes out at Elijah, verse 18. What have you against me, O man of God? Have you come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? Earlier that day, there was nothing better than Elijah, the minister, the man of God. He was a blessing. Now he's nothing more than a reminder of her condemnation. Have you come here to destroy me? He's no longer welcomed under the roof there in Zarephath. You see, the widow does not like the providence that has befallen her, and in response, she blames God's servants. And let me just say this as a sidebar, that happens. Ask a ruling elder. When the saints oftentimes go through that valley of tears, the dark night of the soul, if you will, when you have more questions than answers, oftentimes the saints will turn on the minister. Do I, do I say that to garner your sympathy? No, I just say it because it's true. <laughs> to make you aware of it. That if you want to step into the office, kind of like Ernest Shackleton, right? And endurance. The likelihood of you returning is zero, Right? But to expect it as a minister, as a servant of Yahweh. You see, beloved, the widow's complaint is really with God. In all of her suffering, she's begun to question the goodness of God. You see, all that she understands about God in this moment is that he is her judge. It's as if Elijah's arrival and subsequent death of her son has brought her sin to God's attention. And somehow God didn't know about her sin, that she was a sinner, fallen in Adam, needing a redeemer, needing a son to die for her. But she doesn't see that right now. So she's not sure what to do with her guilt. You see, the noise of a hard providence has silenced the gospel in her life. 
And I thought to myself, well, that, that resonates surely with some of you. Some of you are going through a very dark time right now. And if you're not, you're going to. When that gospel is played on the harp in a minor key. And you'll ask yourself, where are you, God, in the midst of this? Have you forsaken me? Have you forgotten me? Shall evil triumph over me? You see, saints, the widow sees the death of her son as God's punishment for her sins. And rather than turn to God in her suffering and seek to see her son's death as an opportunity to place her faith once again, even as she placed her faith in Yahweh's promise for flour and oil, to place her faith in Yahweh to provide life in the face of death. You see, she's on the verge of leaving him. And in that moment, in that continuum of real life lived out in history, there's, a, there's an access point, a crossroads, right? We're not hypothetical Calvinists, we're real Calvinists. There comes a point when you have to make a decision. Will you trust Yahweh in his word and walk through the valley of the shadow of death still trusting him when everything around you tells you not to trust him? When the wind is howling and the waves are mounting up and seemingly the Lord of glory is asleep in the stern of the ship. And you're asking, Lord, don't you care? Don't you care, Lord? You see, beloved, she's struggling with a guilty conscience. And instead of seeking forgiveness in God, she begins to blame God and she blames God's servant, asking, why have you done this to me? You see, beloved, God was not seeking payment for the widow's sin in the death of her son. Rather, he was seeking to bring her young faith to maturity. You see, God desires her faith. God desires your faith when he takes you through the valley of the shadow of death, when he takes you through the darkness to purge you because he counts your faith more precious than gold to him. And the only way to purify something as cheap as gold before the eyes of the living God is fire, holy fire, that the chaff might be burned away. That in the end, your faith might be found to result in the praise and the glory of God. You see, beloved, God would pay for her sins. He's going to pay for her sins. With a son. It's just not her son that's going to pay those sins. God, the perplexing God who gives and takes away, will provide a lamb to pay for the widow's sins. So those sins are not just wiped away, like just put under the carpet, not dealt with. No, God deals with every single sin. 
Every single sin. Think about that. Every single sin that has ever been committed by mankind will be dealt with. Either by the provision of a son, the son, the Lord Jesus Christ, or by yourself. You see, in the fullness of time, God would send his son to pay for her sins. But right here in the dark providence, she's having a hard time seeing or believing that. What's most real in her life in this moment is the dead child she's holding lifeless in her arms. You've woken up with a child in the night, those of us who are parents. The child is heavy as a rock. Could you imagine, though, all your hopes, all your future, just lifelessly laying in your arms. That's the picture here. And did you notice this? Did you, did you notice in the midst of the darkness how the man of God moves toward the hurting saint? Elders, listen. Aspiring elders, listen. Young men, old men, young old men, Old women, listen. Elijah knows that there are no words in the language of men that are going to be adequate to deal with this. He comes in the silence, as it were, in that moment, in that pregnant moment, that holy moment with that child in her arms. He doesn't seek to defend himself, nor does he reason with her about the problem of evil, the question of theodicy, and philosophically, how can there be a good God, all-powerful, all-knowing, and yet evil simultaneously? She's not a project to him. He doesn't remind her of all that she, he's done for her. Just think where you'd be if I weren't here. You would have had no bread, no flour, no oil. No, that's not what he does. He simply asks her to place her burden in his arms, verse 19. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. Here is Elijah, humanly speaking, in a situation he does not ask for. Right? He obeyed God. He spoke to Ahab, and he was run out of town. He had to go to Kareth, right, to the brook, be fed by ravens. He walked from Kareth to Zeropath. He's done exactly what the Lord has commanded him. He's trusted God along the way, and now he's receiving the brunt of the widow's blame. The closer Elijah walks with God, the more trials he faces. Did you hear that? Sometimes when you walk with God, the closer you walk with God, the more exacerbated the trials will be. The greater the suffering will be. Yet he doesn't waver, right? He, he continues to stand upon the word of God and walk in obedience. Right? Yahweh had not even brought him this far to fail him, had he? 
So Elijah takes the widow's complaint to God and to intercede for her. Notice what he says in verse 20. And he cried to the Lord Yahweh, O Lord Yahweh, my God. It's a personal possessive pronoun. It's my God. Have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? You see what Elijah's doing? He's asking in faith why, why this is happening. He doesn't understand. Beloved, Elijah's a man like us. You see, he has no more answers to God's ways than the widow does. What does he do? He, He goes to the only place he can go, to the God who's perplexed him. That's what faith does. That's what saving faith does. It, it goes right back to the God it perplexes, that's perplexed it. He goes to God in prayer, right? There's no precedence for this prayer that Elijah prays, right? There's, there's no one who's been resurrected from the dead thus far in the canon of Scripture. So he can't appeal to, oh, you remember when you, you resurrected the, the widow name, son? No, this is, this, is, this is uncharted territory. Verse 21. After stretching himself out upon the child three times. Now you're thinking, oh, I know your mind's racing there. Because mine was. That's strange. What's going on? That's symbolism. What, what, is, what is that? Three times, three days in the grave. Three, okay, three resurrected on the third day. Okay, yeah, I got it. Let me say this, and I, I've been thinking about this. Mr. Yancey, a couple weeks ago, gave a devotional on Sunday night over there, and we were talking about the baptism and Jesus' identification with his people, and I started meditating on that reality of how God comes near He's God with us. He's Emmanuel. And I think what we see here, now you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think what you see is the man of God typologically pointing forward to the man of God, Jesus Christ's definite article, the Son of God, identifying with the widow's son. Right? He's laying on top of the child three times. Arms to arms, legs to legs, he's, he's laying on top of. He, he's seeking to identify with this. And in so doing, making himself ceremonially unclean. For to touch a dead corpse was to do so, was to be unclean. And yet the Son of God, right, a Son of God, Elijah, pointing forward to the Son of God, comes and he identifies, he draws near to become one with, if you will, that he might save this dead son. And we're told here that Elijah cried to Yahweh, Oh, Yahweh, my God, let the child's life come into him. He's asking God to do only what God can do, the impossible, the very thing that Baal could not do because Baal is an illusion. He's a nothing burger, right, as we said last week, to restore the life of this child. Then we have these incredible words in verse 22, now listen to what it says. This should make you want to go home and begin to pray right now. You want to begin to pray right now, do you not? Listen to this. And the Lord listened. The Lord listened. Did you see, did you see that? Do you hear that? The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again and he revived. 
And the prophet who moments before took the lifeless child from the arms of the mother now places the child back into those arms of that child, back into the arms of that widow, rather, whose child has been raised from the dead. See, your son lives, verse 23. God had given life to the widow's son. He had rescued her faith. And the widow says this in verse 24, And the widow said to Elijah, Now I know. I had my suspicions. I was inclined. I was favorably inclined to believe. But now, now I know. Now I know that you are a man of God. That the word of God in your mouth is truth. And when you step back from the text and you think about what's happening here, you start to see, do you not? You start to make the connections that this widow's faith is now based upon the resurrection of a son. Whose else's faith is based on the resurrection of a son? My faith. Your faith. Our faith is based upon the resurrection of the Son of God. You see how the the type points forward to Jesus Christ? And did you notice the connections to conclude this morning? The connections with Luke 7, 11 through 17 that Mr. Hutton read. Two widows, right, Both lose their sons. Both are filled with unspeakable grief. Both Elijah and Jesus identify with the two sons. Elijah stretches out on the dead son three times. Jesus, what does he do when he sees the the caravan, the widow's entourage with the buyer and the child being carried out of the city gates? He reaches out his hand and he touches it. Again, identifying with drawing near to the widow and to the dead son. Both widows witness the same miracle. Their sons are given back to them by the man of God. But did you notice the difference? What's the difference? Well, the main difference is Elijah had to seek God to bring the life of the child back. But Jesus, he is God. He just speaks. You see, he is the resurrection and the life. He who believes in him shall never die. You see, and both miracles produce the same response. Those who witness the miracle place their faith in God, all because of the resurrection of a son. The widow's confession, I know you're a man of God. The word of God now dwells within your mouth. Luke 7, 16, fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us. And God has visited his people. So saints, what is a a one final application for us? Saints, today as we persevere in hope, Christ has been raised. But this side of heaven, we live our lives in a veil of tears. There's sickness. There's disappointment. There's disenchantment. There's, There's just blah. There are funerals. There's perplexity. But we know that this will soon pass and our tears of pain will give way to tears of resurrection joy in a new heavens and a new earth. Psalm 30 verse 5, weeping may tarry for the night but joy comes in the morning. 
The church has been weeping since the risen Christ has ascended to the Father to tarry there until he returns. This is the night of weeping. This is the veil of tears in which we are. This is the wilderness, and we're pilgrims. But joy comes in the morning. Joy will come on that day when the Son of God will return and bring resurrection joy. In 2 Corinthians four seventeen to 18, for this light and momentary affliction, right? You're thinking, how could Paul say light and momentary? It's anything but light. It's heavy and long-enduring. Affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So let's keep our eyes on the author of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we go through the dark night of the soul, when we go through the veil of tears, we'll see him who is invisible, the one who is the resurrection and the life. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you, Father, that you care for the widow and the orphan, that you call us to be those who are true in our religion, that we would remain unspotted from the world those likewise, like you, caring for widows, caring for orphans. For in our weakness, your strength is made perfect, that in our death, life might come forth to bring life to others, that we might console them and comfort them with the comfort we ourselves have received. O Father, continue to work in us to will and do what pleases you, all to the praise and glory of the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.